the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Gary Beckner joins us now, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. And I understand a new survey out, uh, cooperation between Gallup and Phi Delta Kappa, looking at the state and perception of public school education and the public teachers in America. Give us some of the, the highlights, if you would, Gary. Did, did we learn a lot about changing attitudes or changing perceptions based on the, uh, the experiences in places like Wisconsin and Ohio? Oh, we have. And by the way, Craig, thank you very much for allowing us to be on the air with you. We appreciate it. Even though we're the fastest growing national organization of our kind, we're probably still the best kept secret, too. So this is a a thrill to be on the air with you. Uh, Yeah, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup survey, it it just came out this week, uh, indicates what we as an organization have known for quite a while uh, from our own surveys, that Americans um, are getting very frustrated with and unfortunately, they, they're getting frustrated with teachers, but that is misdirected, that anger, because the, the Gallup survey actually kind of underscored what we know and that Americans really continue to support their teachers, but not their teacher unions. And that disconnect is really giving teachers a black eye. Uh, the survey showed that 71% of respondents said that they have trust and confidence in American teachers still. However, when asked about the teacher unions, only 47%, actually 47% said they believe the unions have hurt education compared to only 26% believing that unions have helped education. So we've got to work hard to separate uh, this synonymous synonymous, uh, connection of unions and public education and get back to just uh, teachers and helping teachers to do what we do best. Do you think there's a level at which the the black eye that has come, and again, I agree with you, I think a lot of the anger, the frustration has been misdirected, but do you think there's a level, Gary, that a, a degree to which the black eye that has been given to education by the unions uh, is, is deservedly? Sure, absolutely. When, when you just follow the the takeover of public education by unions uh, since 19, or the mid-1960s on. I mean, I, I just want to go back for a second. Even, even then, when it started to happen, when the unions started taking over public education, uh, even leaders of the NEA thought that was a bad idea. I mean, in a, in a Nostradamus uh, moment in 1968, the former NEA executive secretary, uh, Dr. Bill Carr, William Carr, 
warned the convention members at the NEA convention that this would someday lead to to to, to destroy the confidence of the public in in education. Well, I got to tell you, because and I, and I asked that question, uh, Gary, not not to necessarily throw uh, stones, but uh, years ago. I obtained a copy of a publication that was produced by the NEA and the California Teachers Association entitled Guidelines for Academic Freedom in the Public Schools. And when I read what the union thinks about conservatives and uh, those that are concerned about getting their children a a quality-based education that still protects the, 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 the mores of the family, uh, and who the union considers to be their enemy, I was appalled. And I thought, you know, you're, you're painting the majority of the parents that send their kids to your schools as the enemy here, uh, and they're not the enemy. If anything, I think the perception by a lot of parents who really understand the agendizing of education that's been perpetrated by the unions as, as the unions being the real enemy of both teachers and students in education. Absolutely. There, there is so much evidence just following. There's a wonderful book written by Dr. Um, Dennis Cuddy. C-U-D-D-Y, of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, some, some years back. He was working in the uh, Reagan administration, I believe. Could have been, could have been a George Bush Sr., but I think it was Reagan. And he, did, he just uh, was flabbergasted when he started uh, coming up against some of the education reform initiatives that the Department of Education was trying to put out and then seeing the pushback from the, from the NEA in particular. The AFT was there as well, pushing back. But he started investigating the history of why they would be so against reforms that would be in the best interest of teachers and especially kids. And he discovered that they have an agenda that has nothing to do with educating our children and has very little to do with actually protecting and helping our teachers. It's all about changing, transforming this country from a republic into a socialist nation. And if you and you you think we overspeak this, but we can give you the booklets and we can show you from our own research, actual document that we produce called Powerful Failure, how the National Education Association fails to use its influence for education to show you that their agenda has nothing to do with education and very little to do with helping teachers. Oh, I tell you what, uh, Gary, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't think you overspeak it. If anything, I might suggest maybe you underspeak it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the agenda that is promoted by the unions that actually is sole and separate from the agenda supported by most, you know, rank-and-file teachers are, are miles apart. You know, it's interesting because I have long believed that, that education is a partnership, that it ought to be a, a dual responsibility between the parents and the teachers. I don't think that parents ought to just dump their kids on uh, public educators and expect them to come back, you know, after a six or seven hour study day. Uh, brilliant. Uh, there's no accountability. There's no effort put in oftentimes by parents today. And I think that's a dirty shame. And I think the poor performance numbers that we're seeing in many of our schools across the country, the, the responsibility of which needs to be borne out by both the teachers and the parents. That said, I have often wondered why so much pushback by the unions, hello CTA, are you listening? Why so much pushback 
by the unions to create any kind of system of accountability. i got to tell you, one of the most dangerous things, I think, to public education or the success thereof today is this whole idea of tenure and the idea that just by the amount of time in service, you somehow magically reach the location or, or, or the position in your scholastic career as an educator where you're now exempt from any level of accountability, that you no longer ought to fear lack of performance, uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the private sector. If I don't perform at my job, the boss will come in one day and say, you got to straighten up and fly right, or guess what? There's 10 other talk show hosts sitting behind you that would be happy to have your job. Why do the unions think that teachers ought to be exempt from that level of accountability? Well, Craig, uh, you'll be, first of all, you'll be happy to know that it's the union's agenda. It's not necessarily a teacher's agenda. I, our own surveys have indicated that our membership, which you have to understand our members would be people that are looking for an alternative, a professional alternative to labor unions, so they would have a different point of view. But these are top teachers. These are national teachers of the year. These are good people. And they would agree that our, our last survey showed that 73% of uh our members thought that the Colorado policy, the new policy for teachers in that state, where teachers can lose tenure if they're deemed ineffective for two consecutive years, our guys, by a vast majority, thought that's a good idea. I mean, there's, there should be no job for life, especially if it has nothing to do, especially if you're a poor performer. I mean, it's just... So you'll be happy to know that many, many, many teachers agree with that. Well, I know that some that have told me and confided in me privately have said, you know, there's there's nothing worse for our profession than those who are tenured, who have given up, who maybe should never have been in the profession in the first place, and as a result of their protected status by the unions, ultimately drag everybody down. You know, that notion of one bad apple ruins the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Well, remember, the union's job is to protect jobs. That's their job. And their, their goal uh, is to make sure that uh, legislatively across the country, as in California, this is a constant battle in states across the country. 27 states in this nation, the unions like in California, are allowed to take dues from teachers' paychecks, whether the teachers want to have be represented by that union or not. See, I'm, I'm comfortable with the role of unions in collective bargaining and protecting, you know, teachers' rights and teachers' benefits and, and you know, uh, work labor, uh, labor hours and things of that sort. I'm fine for all of that. Uh, my problem, Gary, is when the so-called interests of the union or interests of the teachers are now running contrarian to what is in the best interest of the parents and their students because in the end teachers have to realize these kids don't belong to you and the minute you think that you've got so-called academic freedom to begin teaching a standard or a moral that runs contrary to what is taught in my household we got a big problem that's right well change is only going to come when enough of america's teachers wake up to the fact that being inextricably linked to labor unions will never allow them to get the kind of respect and rewards they seek. And, and put it another way, here's the bottom line. Teachers will never get the pay they deserve 
if they continue to be linked with organized labor. All right, I want you to stop on that for a moment, Gary, because I have got the 64,000, oh, it's more than that. It's got so many zeros behind it. The question is unbelievable. I have a question for you that I have yet to have a professional educator ever be able to answer for me. Maybe it's going to be a first here on Lifeline. We're talking with Gary Becker, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators, bit of a different tone, as you perhaps detect, from what has been the typical dialogue with representatives of the CTA or the NEA for some inexplicable reason who will no longer come on this program. Don't know why. We'll, t- <laughs> we'll see if Gary's still on the line when we come back after the... Nah, he's brave. I'll be good to you, Gary. But I got a question I think you'll find fascinating. Let's come back with more of our conversation right around the corner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. All right, Gary, did I lose you? No, I'm here. You're still I'm there. A bra- you're a brave man, Gary. All right. Here, here, multiple choice. Here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or been unable to answer, um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget in a state like California, for example, fifty cents out of every dollar goes to education, okay? So if we have a $110 billion budget this year, $55 billion is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does, and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education, and then our kids cross the uh, the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma. We know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. California, on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California, on average, is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yes. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? A little less than that. A little less than that, but, but, but ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's ten thousand per students and about thirty, st- let's, let's tell you what we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say twenty-five students. So ten thousand dollars per student and twenty-five students per classroom. That means twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by my math. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that $50,000 was going to the educator's salary? Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? 60000 64, average. 64,000? Yep. Average. Uh, all right. 64,000. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're we're going to say uh approximately uh, after we've paid the teacher who's earning an average of about $64,000, we'll do some round numbers here. Uh, $185,000 of the 250,000 per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going? It's 
So this is a true-false question, or this is, you actually want to know where the money is? I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former uh, superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, is that you were constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you ought to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money, I've got to wonder, where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers? Okay, well, I've got an answer for you. But it was a long question, so you have to give me a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree, uh, we obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, so we would agree that, to pour, we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, et cetera, and not be gobbled up by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey, a new film, what's happening, which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there was a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called Waiting for Superman, uh, and this one's called The Cartel. And it shows what's happening in New Jersey, which is, Absolutely a, correlate, a, a you know, corollary with what's happening in California and, and other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway. And that is it showed that there are over 400 school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state. And that's off the backs of teachers' dues, which comes out of taxpayer money as well, as you know. So. The money goes down a black hole, and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. We don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are It's just like our United States government. We have, what was it, by the year 2025, there are going to be more people in the Department of Agriculture than there are going to be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today. Let me interrupt you, Gary. And say, what a breath of fresh air. You have done, you've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally, I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator to finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and th this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done 
when you look at the layers of bureaucracy as we have you know the local board of, of education and then we got the state board of education and then we got the feds on top of that and everybody having something to say on average we're looking at three people collecting a salary in the state of california attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these these glorified paper pushers right. that add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education. Sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now. You can send me the hate email later. Not one adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids. You know what? I tell you... I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock, and barrel. Number one, we don't need three layers of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions. The state level, the feds, goodbye. You're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one class teacher flip that around if you flip it around i'm okay with that i wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the covers you just did now here on radio and 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 let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education i couldn't have said it better and apparently it's a good answer so do i get sixty four thousand dollars you know what if if you work with us to get more people educated in this arena gary absolutely and then some hey we're out of time i want to have you back on gary i'm sorry we're out of time here we're going to get your schedule on earlier next time on the program um i like this organization and finally somebody that knows how to tell the truth American Association of Educators, aaeteachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids Successful, You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents. Then, too, beyond the notion of our ideals for our children not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. Then there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children, and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less than perfect parenting? Let's find out. As we are encouraged to quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking 
and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. We no more need to worry about perfect kids. Jill Savage is the co-author of this new book. And Jill, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Jarell can't. Ah, there? Oh, there we are. Sorry about that. I my headphone for some reason suddenly failed on me. <laughs> Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I, I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean that that stands to reason. Um, oftentimes, we want our see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more success, successful, either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids, and yet suddenly. This goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids. It really can. And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting. And you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream. But then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to separate those out, and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us who may not look anything like the imagined child, uh, their, their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us, recognize they're going to be different than us, they're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents, and uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child. Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them and when one image doesn't match reality do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that i've somehow as a parent failed my child i think some of us uh look at it through the lens of failure i think uh, others of us look at, at it through the lens of disappointment uh i think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding the, of, of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this. But the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child Get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely 
It may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, one example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can You put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists. And I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I'm a musician. And you mentioned um, that this it, this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child? <laughs> well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, and he had no, he took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so... You know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano, and we, we really studied him and said, you know what, this just isn't a good fit, then we had to let that go. There has and to be some sense of surrendering here, too, then, doesn't there? I mean, in, in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has, has entrusted to them may not be necessarily the ones on your list. You're right. So surrender is a piece of it. And the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. Sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activities or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children. We have to grieve that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have. And you always pictured that you would be able to do X together. And and they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because, that you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us. And it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child 
and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would. I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family, uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on, on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief time out. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, What's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. No more perfect kids. I mean, let's just be done with it, shall we? In fact, maybe as parents, we need to admit that um, our expectations don't always line up with reality. And and the other issue here, too, is we were discussing with um, author Jill Savage, who's co-authored the book with Kathy Cox, um, called No More Perfect Kids. Perhaps, too, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing. And by that, I mean, uh, Jill, perhaps the frustration here is we look at them as our kids. You know, we, we raised them, we fed them, we clothed them, we pay for them, um, we nursed them when they were sick, the whole nine yards, uh, or the whole nine months in the case of mom. <laughs> And at the end of the day, we kind of treat them as if they are our own, when in reality, they were God's children first. Is that part of the issue here that we're maybe failing to recognize that God has endowed them with talents and skills and abilities, and he has a plan for their life and a calling on their life that perhaps doesn't match the one that we've come up with or conjured up in our own minds? Yes, absolutely. You know, Psalms tells us that uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as parents, our job is to discover how our children are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's really the journey that we need to be on. And uh, one of the things that, that we talk about in the book is we talk about the concept of um, that culturally we believe that there is something called, that we've dubbed, the perfection infection. And the perfection infection is surrounds us all the time. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we, we go through the checkout line at the grocery store and we see the front of magazines that talk about perfect bodies, perfect families. Um, you know, they, they give the, the, um, the perception that perfection is attainable. Uh, we watch a television show, we watch a sitcom, and a difficult issue is solved in 30 minutes. We watch a movie, and a difficult issue is solved in two hours. And that's not the way our real life is. And so without realizing it, we often put some pretty unrealistic expectations on ourselves as well as our kids. And then we leave God out of that picture mm. because we begin to make an idol out of pursuing perfection or in some way presenting perfection to the rest of the world. And I think social media adds to it as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very common to see on Facebook, hey, I'm so proud of my son. He made the honor roll. You don't very often see on Facebook, well, today was such an enjoyable day. We got a phone call from the principal because of uh, something that our child did at school. 
you don't see that very often. So we are constantly um, comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Our, our, we're comparing our children's behind-the-scenes behavior to other people's, um, you know, I would call uh, highlight reel behavior, mm-hmm. you know. Their, their kids seem to behave well when they're in public, and we know what ours do behind doors as well as in public at times. So without realizing it, we often put some uh, really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others because of the perfection infection, and then we leave God out of the picture. Well, and then there, that leads to a point that you discuss in the book, and I have to tell you something, uh, Jill, my hand's off to you and your co-author, um, and you imagine down through the years I have interviewed thousands of uh, parenting experts, uh, you know, many that the listeners are very well familiar with, you know, up to including the, you know, the Jim, the, uh, uh, Jim Dobsons of the world and so on and so forth. But you bring up something in the book that I've never seen articulated in a certain fashion before that ought to set every parent back on their heels, and that is this. Um, we do a lot in terms, as you suggest, of wanting to um, see our kids uh, uh, be more successful at life than we were. We want them to have advantages that we did not have. Uh, we try to pass on this sense of, uh, of perfection, as you suggest, that oftentimes can be very frustrating to a child when they don't have the capacity to be able to, to match us in that level of perfection. We're trying to create kind of a, you know, Martha Stewart kids, I'll call them, you know? They're capable of doing everything, and they do it perfectly. That's what we want, but of course, we also understand that that's not reality. But meanwhile, as we're trying to kind of force this false dichotomy, this false um, paradigm on our children, it can be very, very frustrating for them. And you ask a question inside the book that I think every parent ought to really ponder, and that is simply this. Of course, we want to say that we love our kids. And most kids, I think, if they stop and pause, uh, will say, yeah, I know, I know, I understand in my heart of hearts that mom and dad love me. That's not up for debate. Here's what's up for debate. The big question that I have that's unanswered, and that is, do mom and dad like me? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and the answer to that question and how our children would respond to that says so much about our parenting skills, doesn't it? It really does. And it, it, it really does. And, and it doesn't matter what we, um, what we say. Like, you know, it, uh, yes, of course my children know that I like them. The bigger question is, would your child really be able to say that? Uh, the, the bigger question is, how do I make my child feel? That really says a lot about our parenting, and that's why uh, in No More Perfect Kids, we also give parents the antidotes to the perfection infection, and those antidotes uh, spell out the acronym C-L-A-P, so that we can celebrate our kids, we can clap for our kids, and C is compassion, to see the world through their eyes to build a bridge into their reality, to have a sense of compassion and empathy 
for them. And this isn't um, about a popularity contest. I mean, some parents would say, now, wait a minute, Craig, how dare you suggest, you know, my job is not to be a friend to my child. I am there to be their parent. I have to be able to be the one that will give them guidance and correction, draw the line in the sand when need be, provide discipline when necessary. I am not so concerned about whether or not my kids like me or I like my kids. It's important that they know I love them, but I, at the end of the day, have to be the parent. And while all that is well good and very accurate, there is this little subtle thing going on where the child can walk away as you're as you're pushing this sense of of your perfection on them and trying to create a child that lives up perfectly to your standards that a child can walk away readily and really really have a big challenge here emotionally thinking i know mom and dad love me but you know i i didn't turn out to be the lawyer that they wanted to be but i'm a really good artist so i guess maybe they love me they just don't like me wow what a what a burden that is to carry as a child it really is it really is and you know i i mean i am a firm believer parents are not designed to be their children's friends i mean all the things that you just said i would absolutely agree with uh, before I got serious about ridding myself of perfection infection parenting, I was a buck up mom. Buck up. Move on. Life, sometimes life's hard. I was just a buck up mom. I didn't have a lot of compassion. I didn't have, now I, I gave my kids direction. I gave them, uh, certainly a structure in their lives, but I didn't really know them. And that's where, that's what we're talking about in No More Perfect Kids is a balance between that. Uh, certainly being the disciplinarian, being the leader of our children, but balancing that out with truly knowing our children. Well, and you know, that leads also to an important question that we can uh, elaborate upon when we come back after a brief time out, and that is, parent, ask yourself this question. Is the, the time in your relationship with your child when you give them the most attention just the times when they're in trouble? Ponder that as we'll take a time out and come back to more of our conversation. Jill Savage, the co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out, then back with more as Lifeline continues.